huge news, years in the making, my brand new book that my publishers refuse to publish, Money Matrix. Beat the money system and build generational wealth. Understand the three main ways that the banks productize you and make money from you. You'll be able to turn that system against itself, build generational wealth and multiple streams of recurring income. It's all at moneymatrix.cash. And if you're quick, the first few hundred registrants and buyers will receive many special bonuses from me. The brand new Moneymaker Summit three-day special event. Meet me at a champagne reception. Meet me at a multi-millionaire networking dinner. Go now, moneymatrix.cash. This is huge. If you want to increase your earning capacity, develop a skill that other people will pay for, or choose a business model where you can convert where you are now to a product or service in quick time. Welcome back to the number one podcast channel, Take a Seat with Sean Land. I hope you've enjoyed all of the guests so far. So don't forget to subscribe and share this with somebody. Today's guest says, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. He's a best-selling author. He also owns one of the biggest property education companies. The biggest. The biggest. <laughs> I want to find out what makes this guy tick, how his brain works, and what's leading him to success. So well, without further ado, welcome Rob Moore. Thanks for having me, Sean. Thank you for coming on. I didn't think we were going we were gonna like reach out to you, but you know, you made it quite simple. You were like, message my my guys on the last event. I did that. And yeah, Kumar emailed us back. Yeah, so. always a pleasure, never a chore. <laughs> so you've, you've come from Peterborough today? Yeah, we've got a little mini tour. So we're doing three um, interviews today. Oh, wow. Yeah. Flat out. Yeah. Well, living the dream. <laughs> the last, one of the last times I saw you, I was in central London and you were interviewing... Uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan. Yes. Yeah. So I was. Looking, oh, you came to that. Yeah, I came oh, to nice. that. It was yeah, that yeah. sort of charity event that we yes. we did at that that moment, and I I didn't know who you were at that stage. I'm sorry because I'm not very TV social yeah, media I'm person. I'm no, 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 no. But I saw you up there, and I was like, I'm. I was wasn't taking notes of you know what information was coming out. I was keeping an eye on you. Like, what? How are you presenting? How are you speaking? Because I was like, if I want to be a podcast host. I've got to be seen like I'm watching what you're doing. And yeah. it was really good, man. It was really good. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people who think about doing a podcast don't realize the skill it takes to be an interviewer. Um, Harry and I talk about this a lot because I'm an interviewer, but I get interviewed a lot as well. And yeah, it's uh, when I watch people speak and I see people like you, I look at them as well as the guest. So yeah, it's... Um, a lot of people can talk, but they can't listen. Yeah. It's very important to keep quiet as well, especially if you want a good podcast, you've got to understand it's not about you anymore. It's about your your guest and your audience, what they're listening to. And and your job is just to push and prod and get them to, to, to go into the information that you want out of them. That's what I feel when I'm doing this job. Is, is that, is that, am I thinking on the right terms or would you, would you put it differently? No, I would agree with you. So, Harry says now we're well over a thousand episodes that we've done. So I've interviewed hundreds of people and I've been interviewed on hundreds of shows. And my biggest bugbear is when a guest, uh, sorry, a, an interviewer takes far too long to get to the question. Because it's very difficult to answer a question that isn't clear. So they take too long, too much irrelevant context. And then most people who interview actually really they want to be the guest and so then they want to throw their opinions in if that's the case you should be either agreeing that it's a conversation and you almost imagine it's not really a podcast you imagine it's two friends talking and that's difficult to set up because as soon as you put the microphones and the cameras it becomes something different um or they should be a guest not an interviewer it's hard to look in so your job right now is you've got to look look interested with me you've got your notes there and you, you you've got to think being in the moment and also what's the next question if you look too much at your notes we're going to lose rapport if you don't look at your notes you might have that awkward pause after this where you don't know where to go next it's a proper skill being an interviewer yeah. for sure and making them feel comfortable but not too comfortable challenging them but not so much that 
you know, I end up leaving here <laughs> fucked off. And, or walk it out halfway. Uh, give you a refund on your boxing tickets and resell your, your table. You can't and, do that. No. <laughs> and that's all. That is. People underestimate that. Yes. 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 There's a lot of thoughts going through your head. I like to stay quite calm, though. I'll be honest with you. I, I, and I like a bit of everything. Now, I feel that sometimes you have to be qualified with the people that you also speak to. There's a lot of podcast hosts who are just throwing out questions like, so tell me your journey. What, what does that mean? Which bit of the journey? Like, So if I've been through a journey myself, I know exactly what I want to ask of you. I think you need to also be qualified. So, you know, I know you're a property expert, but I've been in property for the, since I was 21, 37 now. I've built a good sizable portfolio. And I feel if you say something, my audience are listening to it, but I'm also qualified to you know, conversate on the same topic and what's worked differently for me. Um, I know you're from Peterborough and that's Peterborough is quite close to my heart, you know, because um, I've got family there for the last 20 years in Peterborough. PE1? Yeah. Near City Centre? Yeah, I'm, I live PE1. <laughs> I won't say the rest of it because <laughs> I get recognised too much so I won't say the rest of my postcode, but yeah, I live PE1. Nice, nice, yeah. nice. I know Burma Road. Do you know Burma Road? I do. Oh, I wonder if I own any properties there. I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I dabbled in um in in one of the properties um on Burma Road actually in 2017, and um it's seen immense amount of growth. Like the way I saw it was, I had some money in one of my kids' accounts, and it was getting a hundred pound for the whole year in terms of interest. Um, so I thought, let me put that money in a property. Found up my family up there. They said property prices are this in 2017. It's trip. It's doubled. So you must see um, a huge sort of increase in the, the value of your properties there now. Yeah. So when we started in Peterborough was 2006 was our main first year with my business partner, Mark Homer. Um, and we bought 20-ish in the first year and 30-ish in the second year and 50-ish in the third year. Wow. And we held on to a reasonable amount. We also packaged, sold some on, which... I regret now, because we were buying properties for between, I think the cheapest one we bought was 30 grand. And I think the most expensive one we bought was 80 grand or 85 grand. So maybe the average purchase price we were buying was 70 grand for two and three beds, usually semi or terrace. And you can't get anything sub 200 now, 250, some of them are yeah. going for. Yeah. And that's just on the little ones. Yeah. Um, and that's just natural growth because we didn't really, we didn't change the use. We didn't add value other than just tidying it up and doing a really basic refurb, carpet, curtains, redeck. That was it. Um, and in the property world, there's always the skeptics who go, oh, well, just because everyone says properties will double every 12 to 15 years does, doesn't mean they won't the next 12 to 15 years and things are different now and yada, yada. Here's why I tell you, I believe properties will always go up in value. And it's a very simple economic concept called supply and demand. And um, I'm a watch collector and I have seen watch prices go crazy um, since lockdown. Reason being is more demand, less supply. So people like Patek and Audemars Piguet, they are not making anywhere near as many watches as they could to keep up with the demand. And um, I've been on a waiting list for four APs for six months, not a sniff. And I've bought loads of APs. I'm a good customer of theirs. And there's one particular watch I want. It'll probably be a, a three-year wait. So when you have more buyers than sellers, you have, you know, forced increase in prices. Now, in the UK, um, the planning laws are such you can't just go and build anything anywhere. Um, so there's not a lot of land that we're allowed to build on. There is land, but we're just not allowed to build, build on it. And then a top economist told me this, and I've never heard this before, but this makes complete sense to me. He said that there's pressure from the, 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 the banks in the UK on the Treasury to um, suppress house building. Because if all of a sudden we built 5 million houses, the value of all the other houses relatively could go down because you've got increased supply. And then that's a risk to all the banks that have got all the mortgages on all the properties. So apparently there's been like 21 housing ministers in the last 20 years, and they come in with this vision that we need to build all these houses. 
And then basically the banks and the government's going, no, we don't really want to build anymore. And people don't understand this. And this is why until that changes, which is not going to be in our lifetimes, property will always go up. And that's why it's probably the best investment class that I know. Yes, yes, yes. So you said a few things in, in, in that. One of the first things you said that you let some of these properties go. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when somebody buys an asset, they want to, some people want to get into flipping and buy an asset and flip it. My, my granddad did that in the 60s and he bought a property for £2,000 and thought he was a G when he goes, yeah, six months later, we're selling it for 6000 And then I think, Around the late 70s, there was a big inflation sort of hike, etc. And six months later, that same property went to £60,000. So he always said, Sean, never, ever sell, you know, an asset. Like when you've got it, just refinance it, get your money back out. And then it's running. For, it's like a free trade. What's your opinion on that? Yeah. So we own, I think, 370 properties. I always like to check with my business partner because he tracks it all. But let's say it's 370 property, individual units of, that we rent out. And um, in 10 years, when I'm walking down the high street in Peterborough, I can either say to my son and daughter, used to own that, sold that, spent the money on that, paid the tax on that, bought a watch with the profits on that, bought a car with the profits on that. Or I can say... I own that, paid 200 grand, that's worth a million. I own that, I own that, I own that. So from a legacy perspective, you know, what I, what I own is still in my empire and what I don't is just a sto story that I used to tell. Mm -hmm. Plus, I have experienced myself from 2006 to 2023, a virtual tripling in the prices. The next thing you've got to think <clears throat> about is... Um, tax and accounting. So if you flip a property, you will be paying capital gains tax. If you don't flip the property, you don't pay the capital gains tax. You can refinance as opposed to sell, draw some of the increased capital without the capital gains tax liability. And it still provides income and it goes up in value. The other thing is you lose the income stream. So I think humans generally manage capital badly. Like at the moment, I'm just, I'm literally today buying an Aston Martin DBS and um, I'm just replacing my Panamera Turbo S with the DBS as the daily driver. It's a stupid decision, really. It's a quarter of a million pound car. It will drop like a stone, but I've got the money. Now, if I didn't have the capital, I wouldn't be buying things like that. So most people, when they've got, so they sell a property, they pay the taxes. They don't realize also buying and selling costs. You know, you've got to pay the fees and all of this. And you, you, you take little bits off here and there and, and you might be left with half. Also, when you sell, you've probably got to drop the price a bit. So what you've got in equity, you've probably got up to only half that net in real cash when you sell. And then you've got to do something with that cash. So let's say you sold a property and you're left with a lump of cash. What are you going to do with that lump of cash? I bet if you're thinking smart, you think, well, I just want to put it into property. So why sell a property to take it out of property to put it back into property? Um, but also, if you keep the asset, you get the income, the residual income. And, you know, if I spend my income this month, it's coming next month. If I spend that, that next month, it keeps coming. So capital, you spend it, it's gone. Income, you can't. If it keeps coming, you can't ever spend it all. You can spend it this month, but then you get more next month and next month. So they're the reasons that I, my strategy for property is, is easy. People overcomplicate things. It's buy, hold, die. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I like it. Well, why can't people stay consistent like that? Why can't people, why isn't that really a strategy like buy and hold? Like a time in the market. Yeah, exactly. It's time in the market, not timing the market. People try and time the market. <clears throat> Buy low, sell high, except you don't know when low and high is. Therefore, you can't time the market. But time in the market, law of compounding, decades in the market. I think most people don't do that. One, because they're impatient. They've not seen the results of compounding. And I think they feel like they need the cash now. 
Yes, yes. Rob, look, I've, I've done quite a few businesses myself. And the one that attracts me the most is real estate and property because you, you, you do the least amount of work for it. And I am one of the laziest people in the room. Yeah, I might work here and this job and put money aside, but I've tried restaurants near Liverpool Street and it just takes a lot of your time up and you're doing all this red tape and forms and form filling, managing people, which, you know, anyone outside of yourself. But I see a lot of people hit out in the market running a lot of businesses. But when I talk to them about real estate, oh, that's a bit slow. That's a bit, you know, uh, maybe I'll think about putting some of my money there, etc. You, you're, you're a business owner yourself. You own many different businesses, property companies, book selling, and I'm sure other things that you'll tell us about in this podcast. What is one of your favorite asset classes and, and what, what, what pushes you into the, that sort of space? Yeah, I, I suppose some people could feel that property and real estate is a bit slow, but it's a long-term asset class. And it can be one of the more passive or recurring asset classes. If you want something quicker, the exchange, because everything has a downside, people don't understand this. They're looking for the business model that has the most, if not all amount of upside and none of the downside. So if you want to increase your earning capacity, develop a skill that other people will pay for, or choose a, a business model where you can convert where you are now to a product or service in quick time. But the trade-off of that is your time. I, Harry was talking to me in the car. He says, um, do you ever manage your tenants? No. In the last 17 years, I've never spoken to any of my 1,350 tenants that we currently manage. So it really doesn't need my time. I mean, of course, acquiring the property and acquiring the knowledge takes time. So I'm getting the rewards now and that will last for the rest of my life. Um, if I needed something quicker and more immediate, I would look at what skills and experience and knowledge have I got that I could monetize and what's the shortest cash flow cycle. So being a doctor is a really long cash flow cycle. I decide to want to be a doctor now I can earn in seven to nine years. But starting a podcast or a YouTube channel or an information-based business like Progressive Property, that's a quick cash flow cycle. Because in theory, you could earn money within a week as long as you've got the credible knowledge. So I actually think it's smart to have both. I have businesses with quick cash flow cycles. And then the profits from those go into long-term asset classes like property. Now, I own some classic cars. I have a good watch collection. I have other assets like books and content. You know, Harry, my producer, manages my podcast and YouTube, which, you know, in a good year, that'll be a seven-figure income. It goes up and down with the algorithms, which we were talking about a bit <laughs> earlier. Um, but nearly all of my profits from the quicker cash flow cycle trading-type businesses go into longer-term assets. And look, Property is the best one because you can go to a bank and they'll lend you for property, but they won't lend you for watches or supercars or crypto or anything like that. So it's proven. It's got thousands of years of history, which cryptos and watches, etc., don't have. It has capital growth and income. Gold has capital growth, not income. So it's one of the rare ones where you can get equity if you buy it well, capital growth if you hold it, and income. Whereas most other asset classes have one or two, but not all three. Mm -hmm. Another thing when you're running other businesses, Rob, is they have a shelf life. Like, you know, if you, there's technology that replaces some businesses or, you know, AI that will replace some jobs, et cetera, out there. What do you think is the average shelf life of a business is outside of property? Because you've done many businesses. Honestly, I can't answer that question because I, I live in this silo where I've been running a training business for 16 years and I've been in real estate for 17 years. And that is not average. That is way above average. But I like to think anything I put my mind to, I would be 
way above average. My net worth is way above average. I've written more books. Well, I guess the average is naught point something, and I've written 18. So to me, thinking about averages, like my son sometimes talks about average heights and average weights and average scores in exams at school, and I try and get him away from that because anything you dedicate your time and your passion to, it should be a given that you would be way above average. So, you know, you hear, don't you, people say things like 90% of businesses fail within the first year and 90% of them fail within the next three. And that might be true. I imagine it's probably not far off that because it's fucking hard to run a business and it's fraught with risk. But mine's been going for 17 years and it's only getting stronger. So I would say to anyone, fuck averages and think about what are you prepared to do where being average would be a failure? Where are you experienced? Where are you passionate? And also, um, remember, you, you have great capacity to adapt. Human beings, in some ways, are very adaptable species. And we often adapt as a coping mechanism to avoid pain. So when I started, I was buying, well, in fact, when I started in 2006, I was working for a property sourcing company. In 2007, I set up my own property sourcing company. In 2008, I started my own training business. In 2010, I bought a personal development business. Uh, By 2010, I'd, I'd authored two, three books. In 2016, I launched my podcast. In 2023, I'm writing my new book. So you can adapt and evolve. Your business doesn't have to look the same. In fact, Lamborghini used to make tractors, not sexy, loud sports cars. So get involved in whatever it is you want to launch as a passion into a profession and adapt over time. We did mostly online training in lockdown. Now we're back to nearly all face-to-face post-lockdown. In lockdown, all of my contemporaries were like, oh, we'll never do face-to-face events again. They're dead. And I said, we will. And now many of them aren't. They're not running their business anymore or they're struggling. So I, I, I don't really tend to deal in averages. Yeah. Where does this all come from? Like, where does that discipline, that motivation, that push, that drive to keep getting bigger or look at another aspect of I can push it this way, I can get a a book deal done here or I can see another opportunity? Where do these thoughts come from? Um, I think there's a human nature part and a Rob's slightly weird upbringing part. So the human nature part is, whilst I can't profess to know the entire meaning of life, I do passionately put to people that evolution is essentially growth and expansion of humanity. You know, we we seem to be programmed to go and want to hunt and to discover new lands, traveling across turbulent seas, risking death to find a new land or paradise, now up into new planets and solar systems. So it seems that part of our purpose of life is growth and expansion. And it seems as we grow and expand, we become stronger. And it seems that as we grow and expand, because we seem to have this inbuilt desire to do so, like, Who wants to get worse at something that they're passionate about? No one. I mean, you might not care about something and therefore not want to grow in it, but anything that you're passionate about or interested in, you want to get better. Jiu-jitsu, being a podcaster, you know, your physical physique, how long you want to live. If you're passionate about those things, you want to get better. You want to grow. You want to expand. Um, And this seems to be inbuilt within every human as human nature, individually and collectively. 
And then there's me as a kid growing up in my dad's pub, always upstairs, often alone. Then the fattest kid in my um, secondary school and this feeling of loneliness and just on the outside and not being appreciated and respected and noticed. And so this constant void that I'm trying to fill, both on the humanity level of what's the infinite potential of me, and then on my own personal level of I'm a worthy human being. I've learned to quite like myself. I want to be noticed. I want to be respected. I don't want to always be picked last at sport. I don't want always to be taken the piss out of. And so they're the things inside me that drive me. And I'm 44 and I feel as young as I felt maybe in my life. I, I definitely feel younger now than I did when I was 21, when I used to drink socially with my friends. That mm. my hunger for, <clears throat> for life and challenges is maybe stronger than it was. I mean, it was strong when I started the business because I had nothing. And so when, you know, you're the most hungry when you haven't eaten for the longest. And I had the least amount of money, therefore I was hungry. Maybe I have a different kind of, of hunger now. But um, that's where it all comes from for me. Mm -hmm. That's very, very interesting, that is. <laughs> I, yeah, because at school also I got bullied a lot for being the fat kid. And it was just like you were always at the butt of all the jokes or got beaten up for being fat. And it was just like I wanted gratification. Do you know what I mean? Like I want to go out and and be noticed for doing something good mm. so yeah that's that's really interesting rob um i suppose what i want to sort of go back to is you saying it's a basic human instinct to want to go and hunt and be better but a lot of people these days are not like that they're really really comfortable and i disagree they they, they are com complacent i disagree uh, well, I don't know. As as a mentor, there's so many people you almost have to, you know, be accountable for too. Like, you know, they need to compulsively ask you, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't meet all of my goals this week. And there's a there's rooms full of people who are just not motivated. I disagree. Um, go on. <laughs> so I hear you. But I believe that you are judging these individuals based on what you value, not on what they value. And I'll give you an example. A 13-year-old kid who's not motivated at school but is the best at Fortnite or Call of Duty. They shouldn't be playing Call of Duty at 13, but they are. Yeah. So that particular kid is very motivated at playing computer games but not motivated in geography because they don't like the teacher and they don't have a passion or an interest in it. So what I believe you've done, which we all do, by the way, and I try not to do this, <laughs> is you've judged people having a lack of motivation and too much comfort in the area of mentoring them in success around property and business. Yeah. But they may be kidding themselves that that's important to them, but actually it's not. And they, you may see them on the dojo in jiu-jitsu and they're highly motivated. Mm -hmm. And, and th the reason this is really important is because people who are successful in a discipline judge those who are not successful in that discipline. But those people are more successful in another discipline they value compared to this person who's got a six pack or has made a lot of money. And, and you wouldn't want everyone on this planet to be disciplined and motivated in property because that's more competition for you. And there's no nurses and no doctors and no janitors. So actually for humans to be a society and a community and evolve together. We all need to have different roles and functions. And you know, I, I don't want to talk everyone into being an entrepreneur, a creator and a property investor, especially not in Peterborough, because <laughs> otherwise I'm just creating all my competition and who's going to wash my cars and who's going to do my dry cleaning. And you know, I'm not saying that to be elitist, but you know, I don't look down, I look across on humans. We've all got a different role to play. So, if anyone is struggling with motivation or discipline or focus, number one thing you've got to ask is, is this thing important to me? Or am I kidding myself or a society or, my, or someone imposing that it should be important to me? If it is important to me, then why? Am I not getting the right education? Am I not around the right people? Am I, have I not got 
the right mentors. But, um, you know, to say society is lazy, for example, you didn't say that, but that could be a general statement. Well, I'm not lazy in training for my boxing match and I'm not lazy as a property investor and you're not lazy as a podcaster. We're just judging maybe the woke left or maybe the younger generation just because it, it's different times. Um, and don't forget, there's tools like social media and AI which replace certain human functions. So we had to do all the research ourselves and now we don't. And so the world has changed and evolved and it's different. Um, and, and here's another reason why I think this is important to say, because I could have just agreed with you, because I've mentored hundreds of thousands of people. And some of them, I look at them and I think, you've got everything you need, just get off your ass. Why are you not getting off your ass? Mm -hmm. But everyone I believe has to believe that they can do it. And a lot of people don't believe they can do it, whatever it is. And I'm here to tell you, if you want to do it, one, you have to define it. Two, you have to make sure that it is something that you really want to do. Three, you have to start it. And four, you have to persist at it. And then you can do whatever you want. And you're not lazy just because you're not rich yet. Yes. But some people want the lifestyle and they want the money. And they look around and say, where Everyone is that? Everyone wants the lifestyle and the money. But then they look at where the, one of the biggest industries is, and that's probably stocks and shares on the financial floor or property. And they're like, well, if I get a deposit or find someone to work with and I get into that, everybody thinks one, two properties, I'm going to be rich. That's, that's, that's the yeah. focus. So how, how do you, they put a filter on that? Yeah, look, let's all be honest. Do we all want the shortcut? Yeah. Like, who wants to go down the long, painful, difficult road? No one. Why? Because there's, there's a part of our brain that is looking for instant gratification. It's a human trait. You even admitted to yourself that you can be lazy at times. So, of course, every human is going to be allured by the instant gratification. And many of us fall for it. But... In, in an area of your life that is really important to you, if you can understand that diamonds are formed under pressure and things that are easy now are hard later, but if they're hard now, they're often easy later, and anything worth doing is worth doing well and long, then in the end, you realize that the, the shortcut is actually the long way around. So... You know, if anyone listening is a successful entrepreneur, I bet you at times they've either taken a fat burner pill or a steroid or tried to cheat or shortcut in some way their health and fitness. Because humans have a driver for instant gratification. And so as other humans know that, they use that as a marketing tool. I bet anyone listening who's been successful in the gym has also put needles in their forehead or in their lips or whatever, because they want to instantly look younger or better. So how I try and live my life is where I'm looking for the shortcut, just try and say to myself, the shortcut is actually the long road and the long road is actually the shortcut. I've never had Botox. I've never had any cosmetics. I've not even so much as, I'm not, I'm not even so much as having creatine, let alone any fat burners or anything like that. And no enhance, enhancing supplements. Because the way I see it is, that's the shortcut and it'll end up not being the shortcut. Whereas if I just train fucking hard, that's the best way to win. And, and I, I try to, to teach myself that. How do you train fucking hard? How do, where does that come from? Where's that drive? N desire, hunger, need. What's the need? The need to win, the need to be better than someone else, the need to be better than yourself, the need to not publicly fail and be humiliated, the need to challenge yourself, the need for growth, the need for variety. So let's say 
this was a setup. And actually, you were here to deliver the news to me that I had 24 hours to live. If that was the case, I would look at you and go, for the last 17 years, I've lived a fucking good life. For the first 26, not so much, because I believe that my birthday isn't January the 4th, 1979. It's December the 15th, 2005, but that's a different story. But I can honestly say that if today were my last 24 hours, um, number one, we'd need to get a lot of women to come and join us in this room. <laughs> Just my wife. <laughs> Harry, you'd be in, wouldn't you? <laughs> no, um, if this were my last day, I, I, I could, I'd be pleased and proud of what I've achieved in my life. Mm. That's why. That's why I do these challenges. That's why I take the longer, harder road. That's why I you know, took the bait of this charity boxing match. That's why I got the world record for the longest public speech. That's why I've written 18 books and not 17. That's why I said I interrupted you in your intro, which was very rude, to correct you, to tell you that we have the UK's largest property training company, because that is true. And that was my goal to build. It wasn't my goal to build one of the largest. It was the largest. Because I, when I get to the 24 hours before my death, I want to make sure I've lived. And too many people that, you know, that's why it's good to look at death and tune into death. Because I think it's the only way you really know how to live. I wouldn't want to live forever. Because if, if you could live forever, you wouldn't live. If you only have a short time to live, that's when you fully live. Can I ask you a personal question? 12 inches. <laughs> <laughs> does young Rob, does that person ever speak to you? Right. So um, my therapist, who I hadn't seen for a long time, but I went to see her a few weeks ago. Um, she's always talking about this young Rob. And she's like, you're not very nice to him. And you don't listen to him. And you're not very compassionate to him. And... Yeah, she sort of, she says we have multiple personalities and I have this personality of this young Rob. Um, and she's always taking the therapy sessions down, to, down that road. And I must admit, I resist that a bit. Um, there, there's a lot of shame for me being young. There's some things even I probably wouldn't talk about on a podcast. I've not been abused, but there's just some intense shame about sort of age nine to 13. And so it's really fucking hard for me to really like, honestly, if that was someone else's son, I'd probably have a massive amount of compassion for them. I don't really have compassion for myself. I don't really like it's not that I don't like myself then. I don't, just don't like that, that part of my life. It's just fucking so much pain. Um, and always hiding and running away from it and, and just like obsessing about just being loved. Um, so that's probably an area of my life where maybe there's work to do. Um, but it's also a driver. If I didn't have that shame and I wouldn't have the polarizing drive that comes from running away from that shame. Like, in a way, that shame from then has dr driven me. Like, everyone who's in my camp will tell you I'm training like a professional fighter and I'm not a professional fighter. But part of that is driven by shame. And people think that shame is a bad emotion, it's just an emotion. It's a very motivating emotion. So you knew we were talking about sometimes people are lazy and comfortable. Comfort is, I think, one of the great enemies of progress because it's shame and guilt and loneliness, you know, and envy. These emotions are powerful and motivating. Like I didn't get my first Ferrari through comfort. I got it through envy i.e., why the fuck should you have one? Why can't, if you can, why can't I? And I'm not embarrassed to admit that. It was envy 
for three years that drove me to get my first car. It's not envy. I'm about to buy my eighth car, so I'll have eight cars. It's not envy that's driving me to the eighth. It's a lot of spare cash. Um, but it was envy that got me my first Ferrari, and that it's, it's not a bad thing. See, Rob, this is where I'm sort of getting at, like, you've had certain situations happen to you which caused you a great deal of pain and that's almost like your driver and I feel there's certain things in my life that happened that drove me to try and make it out of the hood as they would say to get to a level where nobody could judge me or dictate me and I could I'm not that little fat boy or whatever do you know what I mean but not a lot of people have that 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 scenario, that situation. Their mum's been very good. Their dad's been amazing. They've, they've, they're all in the matrix. Everything's going wrong. They're going into nine to five, and then they want to do better in life, but then they, they then they don't as well because there's there's not that that thing yeah. that thing in their childhood that made them feel a certain way that people judge them a certain way. That, you know, you feeling like a nobody. Um, they don't have that thing driving them how do you put that but that into somebody like do you tell them go to the gym and put yourself through pain or or, or, what, or what like how can yeah. they they find that driving factor that little mechanism yeah okay i agree that there are some stroke many people who are probably relatively comfortable but i would say there are way more people that experience some form of pain or trauma growing up I would argue, and I don't know this, but it would be interesting if anyone's listening, maybe they could send in some research if they've done this. I would argue that most of us have experienced some pain and trauma growing up, even if it was imagined. Because honestly, a lot of the bullying and the loneliness I felt was imagined in my own head as much as it was physically done. I wasn't beaten up in the playground every day and I wasn't teased and tormented every day. So I more tormented myself You know, they say, don't they, 99% of the things you worry about never actually come true. I think Mark Twain said, I had many worries and I had many bad things that happened in my life and most of them didn't happen or something around all the worries that never actually occurred. I probably just butchered one of the great (laughs) quote masters of all time there, Mark Twain. Mark Twain also said, the more I learn about humans, the more I like my dog. (laughs) So, um, So my guess is, Most of us listening have experienced some pain, trauma or challenge growing up. And that can be a good fuel to use to motivate you. If you're listening and everything's quite comfortable, all you've got to do is ask, what do you really want? Because I I would argue we all want a nicer car and a nicer house and a nicer lifestyle. And some of us are honest enough to admit that and go and hunt for it. And others have just sold out their dreams and, oh, no, life isn't all about material items. But if we could choose, we would probably choose something nicer than we've got. Remember going back to humans' desire for expansion and growth. So sometimes people are comfortable because they're at their level and that's okay. Or what I would say to those people is just be okay with being at your level. I don't want all nurses to quit and become an entrepreneur. Because there's going to come a time in my life when myself and my children are going to need nurses. Now, many nurses start as nurses because they want to help people. And that's great. And we need more people like that. I personally believe we should be paying nurses more money. But that's a a, a governmental issue. It's not anything that entrepreneurs or billionaires are doing wrong. Um, But generally, there's two ways to motivate yourself, pleasure or pain. So you either set a very clear, specific goal of the things you really want in life. And then the the test for if you really want them is how much you're prepared to sacrifice in exchange for getting them. Or many successful entrepreneurs are driven by inherent pain, like you and I. It's one or the other. Yes, yes, yes. Brilliant way to put it. So tell us a little bit about the journey growing up. So you've always been in Peterborough? I was um, transported to Peterborough age 17 by my parents. Okay. Um, because they bought a, a rundown pub there and my dad turned that around and did it up. Um, I actually don't like Peterborough probably is my home, even though I wasn't born there. 
because I was born in Newmarket but didn't live there very long and then Bury St Edmunds didn't live there very long and Cambridge and Neely and these I went around this place but didn't live in them very long enough to say they were my home mm. um yeah so it's probably Peterborough I suppose and how was your education how was you doing in school and college uni? Um, I did good in school because I was driven by shame so I got 98% in religious studies without ever really knowing what I was studying. I was just good at reading the parable of the sower and the St. John's part of the Bible and then reciting it in a test. Um, I got two A stars, six A's and two B's in my GCSEs with no real interest in any of the subjects. I got an A star in religious studies, not knowing why I was studying it. Um, but I always studied hard for exams out of the desire to prove people and be noticed. So it was like, I'll, the way I approached school and exams was like the way I was the fat kid trying to get picked at sport or noticed by the girls. So I remember they, they, they put me in the middle streams. So in my school, there was A, B, C, D, and E set or string. And they just default put me in the middle. And that, that made me really angry. And so um, when the exams came and they put the leaderboards up, I was second, third, fourth, or first in the whole year, even though I was in the C set. And everyone was like, fucking hell, who's this guy? It's not even in the A set. I got 100% at GCSE. I got the best. I was the only person in the whole country who got 100% at art at GCSE. I know because my, my tutor told me. Um, my, tutor, my tutor basically said to me when I did my final piece of work, I think if you add some colour to this, you could get a very, very high grade. He basically told me that I'd get 100%. Um, and that was not because I wasn't interested in any, in any of those subjects. I wasn't interested in architecture that I did at university. I was interested in getting noticed. Um, so school was weird for me because actually what I should have done was business, finance, economics. But it was an amazing relief to me when I started to become successful in business. I get this weird recurring dream and, it, and I wake up with like, I have this recurring dream that I'm stuck at university and I'm in masses of debt and I don't know what I want to do with my life. And then I wake up, I'm like, fuck me, life is amazing. And my, my, my dreams are always really real, very vivid. Some, I definitely can't say on a podcast. But I, I have that recurring dream where I'm stuck in the matrix, as you call it, like broke and not knowing what I want to do with my life. And then I wake up and I am, I am like living a fantasy. And that is an amazing thing. So what path did you take after school then? Well, I went to school and got good grades because you're supposed to. And I wanted to, people to call me smart and not thick. Went to university because I wanted people to call me smart and not thick. What did you study? Architecture. Architecture. Yeah. Okay. How was that? Waste of time. <laughs> Complete waste of time. I, I should have started my business when I was 18. But shoulda, woulda, coulda. But I, did, I didn't know what to do. Um, Maybe you wouldn't be the same Rob Ball? Maybe. Yeah, no regrets. I'm okay with where I'm at in my life. But if I'd have started business at 18 and not 26, it would definitely. What path did you take between 18 and 26? How did that bit of the journey go? Well, I was still trying to get noticed by everyone and loved by people. What about first jobs? Were there any jobs involved before school, college, around that? Yeah, sort of I mean, I worked in my dad's pub from age six. I worked in his pubs, his bars and his restaurants from age six. Always earned. Pulling my, a pint. Always earned my own money. Yeah, pulling pint, carving. <laughs> bottling up, emptying the pool tables and the fruit machines, hustling, you name it. What did that teach you? 
well, I liked it better than school. What, why? Why? Why was, oh, I've just got to be here, answer a couple of questions, listen to a teacher. This could be just good life or why did you like the pub better? Felt useful. Could see the reward. You know, dad would pay me after every um, session I did. He wouldn't pay me every week or every month. It'd be a pound or a five or a tenner. You know, the denominations went up. Why did that matter to you, the money? Because there's the instant reward for the work. Otherwise, why work? Did you have, like, things that you wanted already? Oh, it also really mattered to me that it came from my dad. Okay. Yeah. Because, why? Well, because then I got noticed and appreciated and valued by my dad. Yeah. But from age 21 to 25, I just worked in my dad's pub. But then that became a chore. I didn't enjoy it. it there was strain on our family. I knew I was meant for more than just pulling pints in a bar. Nothing wrong with that. But I was meant for more. I went back to work in my dad's pub age 21 because my mum said, come and work here for a few weeks. I'm not sure something's up with dad. And I went and I stayed there for four or five years. And I think that a lot of people, that's how life happens to them. Like, you don't intend to be on this path forever. And then you wake up and you've been on this path forever. That's scary. Would you say your father was one of your first mentors? I wish I really knew what a mentor was and the value of a mentor when I was younger because I'd have probably appreciated the wisdom my dad had more. But, you know, who listens to their dad? Some people do, but a lot of people don't. I was too busy trying to get my dad's love. Um, yeah. That's deep, man. That's deep. <laughs> wow. So um, what got you into entrepreneurship, Rob? Where was that factor of that balance changing? You know you weren't enjoying the pub anymore. You know you wanted a little bit of a change. How did you know what to do? How did you know even if you, what rooms to enter or if you had money or not, or if you did have money or you didn't have money, like how was you going to make this thing happen? Um, what got me into being an entrepreneur is not why I'm still an entrepreneur. What got me in was a total disdain of authority and an ego an ego so big but not in the bragging sense in the trying to protect me sense that I found it ever increasingly harder to do what someone else would tell me. And so I fell for the rhetoric that you can be your own boss. And by the way, I'm glad no one told me the actual truth. Be your own boss. Do what you want, when you want, where you want, with who you want. That is the biggest delusional load of nonsense but I'm glad I didn't know the reality because when lockdown happened and I had 105 staff in my office and I had to go in the kitchen with my MD and my business partner and basically go down that list and go, got to let them go, got to let them go, got to let them go. Yeah, they've got a young family. Yeah, they've just had children. Doesn't matter. Got to let them go. Got to let them go. You know, you're not doing what you want, when you want, where you want, with who you want. You're doing what you fucking have to do. And we had to do that. And I'm proud of myself that I did it. I'm also proud of myself that as soon as I could, I brought them all back. And proud of how we handled lockdown. Because the government fucking nearly ruined this entire country with what, with what now has been proven to have caused more deaths than it saved. And you may have to edit this out because YouTube doesn't like us talking about these kind of things. I'll leave that up to you. But that's the fucking truth. And yet I just got on with business and did did hard things. So look, you, I, I'm, I'm the top of the food chain in my organization. 
But Harry's booked these three chip trips. He's driving the car. He's telling me where to go and, and when to go. And I'm doing what, I, I am as much his bitch as he works for me. I happen to pay him, but he earns his money. And I, like, sometimes I look at Harry and go, he makes me do, you know, your intros. And you have to go like the channel, subscribe. I feel like a complete whore when I do that. I hate doing that. And Harry's like, you've got to fucking do this. Do and it. I'm like, I'm just your bitch. And so, you know, when you have children, you have this delusional fantasy. Oh, I can't wait to have children because I can teach them all my wisdom and I can raise them to be amazing people. No, like when you have kids, like they never fucking listen to you. And you, you've got to do half the time what they want you to do. They teach you. Yeah, that, exactly. One of my mentors said to me, your children will teach you as much as you teach them. So the, what drove me to want to be an entrepreneur is the delusion. What I want, when I want, when I want with who I want and be my own boss. What drives me now is I love the responsibility of the lack of freedom I've, I have. Paradoxically, it gives me freedom. I am, I've got nearly 150 people on my payroll. I've got 1,350 tenants. That is a lot of responsibility. And you could argue a lot of people, well, a lot of people say to me, fucking hell, Rob, I wouldn't want that many tenants. I wouldn't want that many staff. So they see it as a lack of freedom. I see it as total freedom. So that's what got me into wanting to be an entrepreneur and run my own business. But I'm much better at, with authority now. And I'm much better at being told what to do. I just have to respect the person who's telling me. Like, I respect you as an interviewer, so I'll answer any of your questions. If, if I didn't, you'd be getting a very rebellious version of me. How have I been able to earn your respect? Because um, you're asking thoughtful questions and you're allowing me to speak. And I wouldn't even be here if this wasn't a show we wouldn't want to be on. If you were trying to trap me with sound bites and do what BBC just did to Andrew Tate... Mm. You'd get some good content, but you wouldn't get a mate after this. <laughs> Although you want some of that content, don't you, Harry? You want beef and arguments. How did you get him on your podcast? Now, if I told you, I'd have to kill you. You should, ask, you should probably ask me how are we going to be one of the first independent media to get him again since his arrest. That's what you should probably ask me. Well, that's what I meant to ask. Him. Yeah. It just came out wrong. Do you know what? There are some things on podcasts I should not say. And I'm not very good at it. I, can you remember a question I've ever had, where, Harry, where I've refused to answer it? But I actually should do that a bit more. I am not telling you how we have managed to um, get Andrew Tate round one or round two, bigger, better and earlier than everyone else, on air. But I might, do, I might do you a little bit of a favour off it. <laughs> How's that? That's the right answer, isn't it, Harry? Yeah, because there's, there's some things that we do that it takes a lot of persistence, smarts, consistency, relentlessness, creativity to do. And I'm not... I'm not going to let the world know how we did that. However, what I will tell you is this. I will, give you, I will give you something. And that is, take the time to hand write letters to your top guests and you will, get, you will open way more doors. Take time. I, like, it, I wrote the book Life Leverage, which is basically how to hack time and achieve quicker, faster and easier. And when I wrote that book, another author and creator who was very popular at that time was Tim Ferriss, who wrote The 4-Hour Workweek. And back then, we were all trying to hack how to do things quicker. Um, there are lots of things I want to do quicker, don't get me wrong. But meaningful things, I'm doing the opposite now. And I'm going to, I'm going to take longer. So I'm going to take longer to get um, Arnold Schwarzenegger on my podcast, so I actually get him. And I'm going to take longer to train so I actually get fitter. Um, so sometimes you should take longer because people can say, I, I want to shout out to, to Lewis who just interviewed me. I, I know you know him. Yeah. Because he, he did a fucking ton of research on me. <laughs> In fact, I think the only way I can, he, he, must be, he must have listened to all of my content 
because no one I've ever been interviewed with knew as much about me as he did. So he didn't try and do that quicker. He did that longer. Property. Don't try and do property quickly. Try and do it long. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs>